Hey, Bridgetown, John Mark Comer here. It was so great to see so many of you over the last week at the prayer vigils, even if you were behind a mask or from a distance. I love you and miss you and can't wait until, God willing, we're all back together again. As you know, three weeks ago, we hit pause on our simplicity practice in order to honor the historic moment that we are living through in our city and our nation with Black Lives Matter. The plan for next Sunday is to, again, God willing, everything has an asterisk right now, but to step back into our simplicity practice. But we are on the journey of racial justice for the long haul, what so many leaders of color have said to me over and over and over for the last few weeks in particular, is what matters is less what you say and do right now now and more whether or not you are with us on the journey and still in the conversation three months from now or three years from now. Systemic racism is a 400-year-old wound in America alone. There is no quick, much less easy fix. We know that the last few weeks in the life of our church were very small steps on a very long journey. We are very aware of that and we commit to keep moving forward. We're doing a lot behind the scenes with our staff and our leaders in the weeks and months to come over the summer, and we are working on more for our church. That said, Dr. Brian Loritz has said yes to our invitation to come up and teach on a Sunday and kick off our Race and Justice series. Dr. Loritz, if you're not familiar with him, is a, I recommend you listen to him online right now. Um, he's a very well-respected black pastor and teacher on writer, in particular on what does the gospel itself in the New Testament have to say to racism. We're work on working on scheduling his trip up as we speak. But as you can imagine, with COVID-19, it's all a bit tricky. So just stay tuned. More on that soon. Thank you again to all of you that I said that came out for the last week of prayer vigils. If you missed it, please spend um, time, an hour or two or three, on our website and read up on the history of our city. As progressive as Portland is now, if you read that Atlantic article a few years ago that hit a ton of us like a weight in our chest, where our city was really designed as, in the language of that article, a racist white utopia. It felt right and fitting to travel around the city and literally stand on the ground where the social fabric of our city was torn apart by racism, in particular for black and brown brothers and sisters, and to listen and to lament for our heritage. And before we move on into simplicity and such, I've been sitting in prayer um, as I'm sure all of you, over the last week or two, and just to the best of my ability to discern, I have a very simple word to give to you. It's not on racism per se, but just on our cultural moment. And it's less of a teaching and more of just a pastoral word. That said, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're all reeling from the last few months of life in the United States of America and beyond. The cascade effect of the Trump presidency, and I don't mean that as a political jab at all, but just as an honest appraisal of the partisan divide right now between right and left and the level of anger and acrimony between the two, it's at an all-time high in my experience. From that presidency the last few years into the global pandemic of COVID-19 over the last few months, into a global recession with so many out of work, even in our own church and 
city or just living in fear of a layoff into a tipping point in the outcry over systemic racism in our country after George Floyd's murder in particular and others set off a wave of protests unlike anything in our nation's history, where if the statistics are right, for the first time ever, the vast majority of the population is ready to do whatever it takes to change the way our nation is done. From there into looting and violence and online outrage and so on, the cascade effect is like, it's felt like just wave after wave after wave. It feels to me like in best paradigm I could think of, it's like we're living through the 1930s and the economic like fallout of the Great Depression and the 1960s with the social unrest over civil rights and the protest movement and racism. But, it, but if you were to take away God and add in social media, which while of course it does a bit of good, I'm just not sure it's a net positive. It's also gas on the fire of some of our most base primal survival instincts that are grounded in fear and not in love. I've called up a few older, wiser mentors of mine, black and white, over the last few weeks and asked, you know, was this what it felt like in the 1960s? And they all, to a T, with little to no hesitation, said, no, this is not what it felt like. They all mentioned social media and how they are grateful in a sense that we're more aware right now than ever before, but that there's a dark underbelly to social media. But then, interesting, they all mentioned God, that what's missing this time around, because our country is now so secular, that's just the air we breathe, is talk of God and an appeal to the gospel. Of course, there are stunning faith leaders in the public sphere, like Dr. Loretz or Latasha Morrison, or so many that we look up to and respect, even in our own city, people like Michelle Jones and Mark Strong and so many others. But they are no longer the dominant voice. They are now off to the side. The dominant voice is secular to the core. It's the loudest voice right now. All that to say, it's not an easy time to follow Jesus, would you agree? And we have no idea how long this season of uncertainty and COVID and phase one or two and, and the unrest and systemic stuff, we don't know how long this will last, a few more weeks, a few more months, a few more years, we just don't know. And my heart today is not to take the focus off systemic racism and just ask, how do we get back to feeling good? Not like we were feeling good you know, prior to the last few weeks. That's the wrong question. The point is not to feel good, it's to become good in our soul and in our society. My heart for today is just to ask, how do we move forward as a church? How do we apprentice under Jesus in a season of life where it just feels like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you read the news and you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop? Well, as always, we look to Jesus, who, it goes without saying, was not white, was not from like the middle class per se, was no stranger to chaos, to generational poverty, to violence, to systemic racial injustice that goes back, in his case, for over a millennia. And to say that we look to Jesus does not mean that we look away from the pain of our cultural moment at all. It means that we look to Jesus for a way through the pain of our cultural moment. So, on that note, Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is called by scholars the little apocalypse because it's written in a genre of literature called apocalyptic, if you're familiar with the Bible. And it's kind of like the Blinklist version
section of the book of Revelation at the very end of the New Testament. Remember from our Easter teaching, if you were here on Revelation 1, that the word translated revelation in the New Testament is apocalypsis in Greek, which is where we get the English word apocalypse. But don't think, you know, World War Z. In the first century, apocalypsis had a very different meaning. It meant to reveal. It was used in classical Greek for the opening of a closed door or the pulling back of a curtain. It's when something that was behind the curtain, hidden from view, was brought out into the open. And Daryl Johnson of Regent University, in his work on Revelation, writes that apocalyptic literature has two pastoral purposes. One is to set the present moment in all of its uncertainty and anxiety in light of the unseen realities of the future, in light of Jesus' return to usher in the kingdom of God once and for all. But secondly, to set the present moment and all of its uncertainty and anxiety in light of the unseen realities of the present. We know from quantum physics what religion has long said, that there is far more to reality than meets the eye, than what we can discern with our five senses or even with a scientific instrument. The point of apocalyptic literature in the Bible is to pull back the curtain of the universe and reveal what's really going on, in particular to pull back kind of that blank screen of secularism and to reveal God's activity in human history, past, present, and future, what God is doing even right now as we speak in the summer of 2020 in Portland and in America. America and all across the world. And in prayer, I just keep coming back to Matthew 24 and Jesus' language as we are living in what the felt experience is kind of an apocalyptic time and in a time where we need to see through and pierce the veil of secularism to open up our mind and imagination to reality and see where is God at work right now? And at the same time, where is the enemy at work right now in order to participate in the kingdom? here and now. That said, read with me from Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, mark my words, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The temple, of course, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the focal point. It was a theopolitical focal point for Israel, theological in that it was the locus point of God's presence, the overlap between heaven and earth. This is before the coming of the Holy Spirit, when the temple of the Holy Spirit was not the body or the church. It was the temple at a very literal level in Jerusalem, but theopolitical in that it was the seat of the Jewish Sanhedrin or the ruling council, really the seat of government in Israel. Israel in the first century was under the oppression and occupation of the Roman Empire, and therefore it was also the seat of compromise and complicity between Jewish religious leaders and the empire. Um, scholars argue that most likely the reason that Jesus was killed by the Roman Empire was for the story we read in all four Gospels of him kind of what's called the cleansing of the temple, where he drove out the money changers in the temple for the injustice, and he said with a quote from the prophet Jeremiah, my house will 
will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Greek word there is ethnos, where we get the idea of ethnic groups, a house of prayer for all ethnic groups, but you have made it a den of robbers, meaning you've made it a place of injustice and of idolatry. It was likely that prophetic witness to the city and the nation and the empire that got Jesus killed. But Jesus is well aware that the days of the temple are numbered. In fact, if you know your history, in AD 90, a few decades after Jesus, it was literally torn down in the Jewish rebellion against the empire when they lost the war by General Tiberius. I've been there. I've been at the base of the temple. The stones that are taller than I am are still there, rubble at the bottom because they were torn down. This was an earth-shattering idea for Peter or James or John, whoever was with Jesus, Mary or Martha, to hear that temple, that theopolitical focal point, its days are numbered. As Jesus was sitting then at the Mount of Olives, which is kind of an overlook to the temple, just not that far away at all, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? This is staggering. And what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's very important. End of the age here does not mean like end of the world. Um, Jews divided human history into two ages, this present age and the age to come. When will we transition is the question here from this age to the age to to come, the end, the word there in Greek is telos, the end goal of human history to what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And what should we expect between now and then, between your first coming and your second coming or return to make all things new? Jesus answered, verse four, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations or ethnic groups, that, and then the end will come. Notice Jesus' list of seven things that we should expect in the time period between this age and the age to come, between his first coming and his second. Number one, people who claim to speak for God but don't. Number two, people who claim they are the savior at a kind of socio-political level, the wonder kind who will solve all the problems of a nation, but really are just a con artist. Number three, wars, where human beings release pent up anger and greed and lust for power and domination onto one another to the death and only the strong survive. 
Number four, rumors of wars, like the rumor, the scary news article, the anxious threat of war with China or whoever. Number five, nations that are set against each other and kingdoms or ethnic groups that are at odds with each other. Number six, famines. Remember, this is the agrarian age. A famine is akin to a recession. It's, it's no money for the economy. It's a, it's a freefall. And number seven, earthquakes or natural disasters. And that is just what the world should expect. He goes on to say six more things that followers of Jesus should expect because we are in the kingdom of God. Number eight, persecution and death in verse nine. Hate and all sorts of people from all sorts of people and places due to our life with Jesus, also verse nine. Followers of Jesus who turn away from the faith, verse 10. Friends and family members who betray and even hate each other over gospel. False prophets and teachers in the church who deceive large numbers of people, not small numbers, just by saying what they want to hear and somehow kind of appealing to their disordered desires or what the New Testament calls the flesh. And last, an increase of wickedness and a decrease decrease of love for God. So there it is. Like, I'm just here to pump all of you up this weekend. But there's a grace there. Jesus is very honest about what to expect in a world where sin is still in our mind and our body and the Satan is still on the loose in our soul and in our society and in the systems of the world itself. And Jesus flat out calls it pain in verse 8, if your Bible is still open. Think about the pain of COVID-19 and disease and death. We now lead the world in our country. The pain of unemployment and food banks running out of supplies and small businesses belly up. The pain of systemic racism that goes back 400 years in America alone and a nation that has never dealt with its past, where there has never really been repentance and reparations, at least not at a national level. And as a result, there has never been healing from that trauma. What Mark Strong a few weeks ago with us called black pain, centuries of trauma that is literally, if you know anything about epigenetics, literally wired into the bodies of our black brothers and sisters. And every time there's a George Floyd or a Breonna Taylor or you fill in the blank, every time that moment comes, it's yet another trigger to reopen the wound. The pain of a divided nation where brother is often set against brother in a kind of online civil war. The pain of a generation with not a lot of hope for the years to come. That is legitimate pain. But note that Jesus calls the pain of this present age, quote, the beginning of birth pains. This is a word picture used all through the New Testament, not just by Jesus, but by later New Testament writers. Jesus and the other luminaries of Scripture claim that the pain that we are living through is a kind of gestation that you mothers, you know more about than the rest of us, bar none. It's a kind of pregnant waiting and labor and blood, sweat, and tears to give birth to the age to come, to a whole new world where Jesus is king and we live in the kingdom. So we lean into the pain. We don't medicate it or numb it or ignore it or deny it or run away from it. We lean into it the way a mother is there and is present to her body in labor, but we lean into that pain in the hope that our present pain will give birth to a future life for our soul and our society in the kingdom. 
And as we labor in birth pains in Jesus' language, also notice there in the text that we read are three directives from Jesus, the spiritual director par excellence. Very simple. Number one, we are not to be alarmed. Verse six, see to it that you are not alarmed. The you there is followers of Jesus. Or that can be translated that you don't panic. The Greek word is thoreo. One lexicon defines it as, quote, to be in a state of fear associated with surprise or an unexpected kind of twist or turn of events. It means to be scared or disturbed or thrown off at an emotional level by a surprise. We are not to be surprised. We are not to be thrown into fear over the unexpected nature of the last few months, but to stay calm and grounded through prayer in the peace of God. Now, that listen carefully. That is not to say that we're not to lament or enter into the pain of the moment or feel like that deep angst in the pit of our stomach as if Jesus would stand aloof. No, not at all. We are sad. We are to be sad. All right, there's biblical precedent for that. We are just not to be surprised. This is not a shock to our worldview where in the language of generations before us, we're well aware of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we don't have to get sucked in to the spirit of fear and reactivity, response, yes, but reactivity over our pain and our moment because we are to expect it. Do not be alarmed. Secondly, we are to stand firm. Take a look at verse 13. The one who stands firm to the end, again, telos there, the end of human history, the kingdom, will be saved. Again, that end there is not the end of COVID-19 or the end of the next election cycle or the end of whatever, but the telos of all human history. We are to stand firm until Jesus' return. But listen, this is more than just a passive kind of waiting for Jesus' return. The Greek word is hapomeno, and it was a military word, it's a technical term, used for a Roman legionnaire. One lexicon defines it as, quote, to resist, to hold one's ground, and to not be moved. It's used in James 1 um, to call us to stand against sin. The same word picture is used in 1 Peter 5 to stand against the devil who, quote, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's used by Paul in Ephesians 6 to stand against the rulers, quote, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not passive, it is active. It is to take an active stand against evil wherever we find it, inside our body or far outside. But listen very carefully. The root word of hypomeno is meno. You may recognize that Greek word. It's used all through John chapter 15, which is a passage I come back to all of the time in my teaching, that is translated, if you have the NIV, remain in God or remain in the vine. If you have an older translation, abide in the vine or abide in God. The word at its base, meno, means to make your home in God and let God make his home in you to come to rest in God and let God come to rest in you. So we are to stand against evil, take an active stand against it, yes, but from a deep place of meno, a deep place where we abide. 
in God, where we live from what a few weeks ago we called the holy center, where we ground our mind and imagination and our heart and even our body itself in participation with the inner life of the Trinity, the community of God, of love and of joy and of peace. We are to ground, we are to take the pain and the chaos and the angst and the lament of that moment, whatever the color of our skin, we are to take that pain deep into the center and let it touch God and let God touch it. And we are to live and work and protest or whatever it is that you do and pray and wait and labor from that deep focal point, from a living connection to God in prayer. We have to live from that place or we will just get sucked in to what the enemy is on about in our moment. And last, number three, we are to look to the coming of the kingdom of God. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Again, ethnos in Greek, all ethnic groups. And then the end will come the end that we all ache for, the ache that we feel in our heart right now for a nation where there is no racism and there's no injustice and there's no divide and there's no outcry in that world, but a nation of peace and justice and health and liberty for all, that ache that we feel is at its base an ache for the kingdom of God, which is a socio-political reality. That is the desire of the human soul. Ask people whether they're Christians or secular or any stripe between, what is it that you ache for. Most people just want, we want to have a life. We want to have a roof over our head and people who love us around us. We want to feel safe. We want to follow what God has put in our heart. We want to live in a community of love and of peace and of justice. That is the base, root, deep, primal human desire. We carry the memory of Eden in our genetic code and we can't shake it. That is our hope as followers of Jesus. But it needs to be said, it needs to be said, even if I get flack for it, that our hope is not in a politician or in a political party or in a miracle cure for COVID-19 or in a solution to the massive problems that we're facing right now, whether it's around injustice or something else. All of that matters very much. I'm not here to discount that at all. It's very important. But at best, that is a holdover to mitigate against the fallout of Genesis 3 and of sin and the Satan on the rampage in the human condition. The end, what we really hold out for, the telos, is Jesus' return to usher in the kingdom of God. This is basic, historic, orthodox way of Jesus. This is the hope that we are saved into. Any version of hope that does not look over the horizon of the next few decades or centuries to the return of Jesus is not hope in the way of Jesus. We've said for years that our generation, you know, if it's the Mark Sayers line, we want the kingdom of God without the king. We want the human rights and peace and justice and love and unity of the kingdom, but without Jesus, without the king. We prefer as a nation to hold on to our individualism and our autonomy and our desire to define good and evil however we want. Thank you very much. But it just doesn't work. There is no kingdom without the king. 
I was listening to John Mark McMillan a few days ago, not only because he has a fantastic name, but also because he's just a genius kind of musician, songwriter, and he translated Jesus' language of the kingdom of God into American as the country of God. And that just hit a deep chord with me. Our city, we, we kind of want the country of God, but without God. The hope for our country, for our city, for our nation, for the world, for humanity itself is the hope of God and his kingdom. Half a century ago, Leslie Newbegin saw so much of this coming. If you're familiar with this story, if not, it's worth your time to learn. He said that as his prediction was that as the West were to secularize, religion would not go away, rather it would be replaced by politics, what he called the political religions. People would take all that religious energy and that deep human need for meaning and purpose and hope for a better tomorrow, and they would take it off of Jesus and his kingdom and put it onto their political party of choice, and the result would be a kind of chaos. We are living through that now. The divide between right and left is a kind of religious holy war. And as we follow Jesus through the pain of our cultural moment, the political animosity, the pandemic, the open wound of systemic racism, the, the unrest on so many levels, we must put our hope in Jesus. Now, that's not to say, don't mishear me, that we don't march or vote or take action or work for systemic change at a political level in our city, in our nation. Of course not. We have to do that work. And, and honestly, the people group that has done the best with this kind of both and in American history that I'm aware of, is the African-American community who engage at a, with passion at a socio-political level, but yet gave the spirituals to the world and the civil rights movement and have such a robust hope far beyond our nation, far beyond the generations to come to the kingdom of God itself. We must, we must work and stand all of that, but live in the hope of the kingdom of God. As Paul put it to the Colossians, we must live in him, Jesus, rooted and build, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. He is our center. He is our hope and our home. So as we move forward in the days and weeks and months to come, I don't know what will happen. I don't know what will happen tomorrow, much less next week, much less in a year. But whatever comes, Take Jesus' direction. Do not be alarmed, number one. Stand firm, number two, against evil and in God. And number three, freight the weight of your hope and your expectation for the coming good onto Jesus and his return. And let us live in and live out that hope for the future in the here and now. God, right now, we just say thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are with and have been with for so many years, our black and brown brothers and sisters in our nation. You are with them in the pain. Show those of us who are white and others how to stand with you and them in the pain in love. Come Holy Spirit not asking you to make the pain go away. We're asking you like a surgeon to let the pain lead to healing in our church, in our city, in our nation, in our world. Come do the work, Jesus, that no politician can do, that no piece of policy, as important as that is, can do. Come do the work of healing and reconciliation in the human heart 
repent, we lament, we wait, we ache, we hope, we feel before you. God, take us to that deep place. Let us live every day, every hour, every conversation, every word from that deep place where we abide in you.